This week's story is about Amy Homan, a designer and the founder of Evolvery, a sustainable and ethical fashion company based in Ohio. Welcome to We Built This Life. This is the podcast that tells stories about entrepreneurs, freelancers, and other business owners who have built their working lives from that first inkling of an idea into careers that help them make the impact that they want to make on this world. My name is Jennifer Walker. I'm a freelance writer, and I love to hear stories about how people build careers that are meaningful to them. So on this podcast, you'll hear from people who have done just that. They're going to talk about their path to their current work and the risks they took to build their careers from the ground up. Thank you so much for listening today. Hi, welcome and thank you for tuning in today. I'm so excited to be telling a story about Amy Homan. She's the founder and owner of a fashion company called Evolvery. And Amy's goal is to make clothing that is sustainable and ethically made, but also affordable. You know how there are brands out there whose stories you are really drawn to? You know, maybe you like their content on their social platforms or their company values or their aesthetic or the person behind the brand and their individual story. That's how I've felt about Amy and Evolvery ever since I found them on Instagram. To me, Amy just seems very real. She's willing to share some of her personal story online. You know, some of the things that are maybe a little bit harder to share and her feelings about the challenges she's faced in building her company. And I like that honesty. As an aside here, I'm reading this book now called I'm Sorry I'm Late, I Didn't Want to Come. And it's about an introvert who tries to live like an extrovert for a year in order to open up her world. And in one of the first chapters, the author, Jessica Pan, is interviewing an expert. And I should have looked this up before I came on here today, but what I remember from it is that the expert said that people connect to us more readily when we share our insecurities and our failures and all of those things that are difficult to share that that is more relatable than us sharing our accomplishments and all the good things that are happening to us. And when I read that, I think about Amy, right? I'm drawn to her story, I think, because she is so real about so many aspects of her business. And that's probably why I've become one of her customers. I have a couple of items of clothing from her essentials line, a short sleeve shirt, a long sleeve shirt, a short sleeve swing dress. All of the clothing is really nice. The fabric is kind of silky, but it has this weight to it. It just feels like it's good quality. And I hope she brings the swing dresses back because I really like them and I would get more of them and just make them my uniform for the summer. So in this episode, Amy is going to talk about her early career working in a non-creative job up until almost her mid-30s. And some personal challenges she faced when she was younger, some really good things that happened to her then. And then she'll take us through her first business, which was a wedding decor business. And then through the founding of her current company, her clothing company, Evolvery. Trying to work for herself and build this business. I've mentioned this already. She's had some setbacks. She's had to make some sacrifices. But even more importantly, maybe, is that Amy, through everything, has had this determination to keep going. And I think that will really come through in this episode. She has really worked hard to keep tweaking things and refining things and zeroing in on the right business idea for her and the way that she can make it work. We'll also get into just a little bit sustainable and ethical fashion and what those things mean and some of the problems with the fast fashion industry, because here 
hearing stories about that industry has helped Amy develop her own values for her company. Now, very briefly, before we get into the substance of this episode, I do want to mention that if you enjoy this podcast, you can find me on Instagram under We Built This Life. I'm pretty active over there, and I would love to connect with you on that platform. It's my favorite social platform. I also have a Facebook page under We Built This Life. So if you're a Facebook person, come by there and say hi. And if you're a business owner or a freelancer and you're working for yourself and you'd like to share your story with me, I would really love to hear it. You can DM me on Instagram. That's the best way to reach me. Send me a Facebook message or contact me at webuiltthislifepodcast at gmail.com. All right, let's get into Amy Homan's story. So who listening today remembers gummy bracelets and friendship pins on sneakers and swatch watches? Well, when Amy Homan talks about how her interest in fashion developed in high school, these accessories, which were big in the 80s, I personally remember gummy bracelets very well. They were a part of how that interest developed. For her clothes, Amy, who has two older sisters, she borrowed items from her oldest sister, who is seven years older than her, until she got a job at Express in high school. And that's when she started to use her money to build up her wardrobe. Amy would go through the shipments at the store and pull items to put on layaway. And she says that other than gas for her car, pretty much her entire paycheck went toward clothing and express. So clothes were the goods that she spent her money on. And she tried to make as many outfits as she could with the items she bought. With this interest of hers, uh, might not be surprising, but Amy decided to apply to fashion design school and she got in. But the school was far away from her home. It meant that she would have to leave the Midwest and Amy just wasn't ready to do that yet. I grew up in a very, very small town. I had 69 people in my graduating class. I still live here and my kids still go to that school, but they have 300 in their class now. So it's a little different, but (laughs) I knew everybody four years ahead, four years below the teachers you know, you were friends with them, you helped out in their classes, it was just a very small community, everybody knew each other. So getting that far away from home, I didn't even think about it. And then when I got accepted, I was like, wait, I can't do this. (laughs) I mean, there's no way I can do this. I've never been that far away from home or done anything like that. Yes, I wanted to go and it wasn't a struggle to say no to it just because I knew myself and I couldn't do it. I don't even know why I applied. I I guess I didn't even think about that I would get in. I mean, a lot of artists like to be recognized, myself included, and I never had that growing up. So I never had anyone like, hey, I've noticed that you're really good at putting outfits together or you're really good at mixing colors or photography or anything in the art. I never really had a teacher that did that or parent or extended family, friend, I mean, nothing like that. So I don't blame anyone for that. I mean, not everyone needs that, but the type of person that I am, I I needed that. (laughs) So I didn't have self-esteem. I did in other aspects, but not as far as like career driven or self-esteem where my art was concerned. So I ended up going to the University of Dayton. Amy was the first person in her family to go to college and she studied marketing at the University of Dayton. She was homesick often at first and came home every weekend for the first semester. And then some big, big, big changes happened. She lost her childhood home when her parents made an unexpected move. She got pregnant and she got married. My mom and my stepdad, they moved to Colorado 2,000 plus miles away the week before Thanksgiving, my freshman year in college. So I didn't really have a home base to come back to. Um... So my sisters lived here, but they're both married and 
you know, had their houses and their families. So whenever I did come home on break, I would stay with one of them, but I didn't really have the home base with my mom or anything. So I really didn't, couldn't come home anymore on the weekend. So it kind of forced me to stay there. And I was like, why did I go home so much first semester? This is fun. <laughs> so I stayed second semester, pretty much the entire semester. I don't even know if I, I think I came home for Easter, but that was it. And then I started dating, not serious dating anyone. I had a boyfriend that would come to visit me from back home, like a neighboring area and ended up getting pregnant at the end of my freshman year. I was not educated on on any of that, like how to protect yourself. I mean, none of that. So I had never been to, you know, the female doctor before. I had an appointment to go when I was done. My sister, my middle sister was like, you need to go to the doctor. You've never, you need to like do this kind of stuff. And I was like, what? Okay. So like she made me an appointment and then we had to change it to an obstetrician appointment instead of a gynecological appointment at the end of my freshman year, which was crazy. So I ended up not going back my sophomore year and getting engaged pretty quickly. Again, I wasn't even serious about this guy. I hate to say that now, but looking back, if I admit it, I mean, I would never have admitted it back then, but now looking back on it, we were just really good friends. Loved him, but not in love with him. Kind of got pushed into the marriage. Our parents both really wanted it. My mom wasn't here. So I think that was her way of kind of feeling better about not being here. And this is just I don't know, she's never said this to me before, but just kind of my feeling on it was she felt a little guilty for not being here. And just through all the years of reflecting back, I think that was her way of like, oh, she'll be okay now. About two years into the marriage, I was kind of like, okay, (laughs) I don't know if this is right for me or not. I kept a journal. I used to write in a journal all through high school. I still have that journal and read back on it and laugh. It's hilarious. And I would write about what I wanted. I did write about fashion too and how the things I wanted to do. And and I did write about how leading up to like getting married, how I wasn't really sure if this is what I wanted to do. I mean, writing it and like reading, I'm like, did I not read what I wrote? I, I just, I hate myself now for doing that. But I also learned a lot from that whole experience. So I don't want to say, oh, I wish that never happened because I would never give up, obviously, my 24-year-old son who's amazing. But I definitely would have done things differently. Amy gave birth to her son when she was 20 years old, and she left college and got a job at The Limited, the clothing company. She worked in collections, which was within their credit card services department. Now, this was a job that Amy did not love. She actually says that working there was a horrible time in her life. But there were a few bright spots. Amy did end up getting divorced from her first husband when she was in her early 20s. And then she met her second husband, Justin, while she was working at The Limited. They started dating when Amy was 24 and they're still married today. Now, during this time, Amy's interest in fashion was uh, put to the side because there were so many other things going on. Some of it was good. She had a young son. She was dating someone new. And some of it was challenging, particularly her relationship with her first husband and his second wife. My ex-husband was and his new wife were verbally abusive, sometimes physically abusive. How my husband now at the time stayed through all of that, I tell you, I don't know. But <laughs> he did all the things with my son that you know a father should do. I mean, he's been in my son's life since he was four. So all the camping trips for Boy Scouts, all of those things, my husband stepped in and did all those when his dad was MIA. You know, they've got a relationship now and all of that, which is great. He's with his third wife. 
but his second wife was a drug addict and just, it was just not a good situation and trying to keep you know your child away from that and trying to keep it as positive as it can be when they're with you. So that's why all of my dreams and focus on what I wanted to do with my life were on the back burner. I mean, you have children, they come first. Then that's what happened in our situation. My husband's always been supportive of everything that I've wanted to do. So if I had sat down with him after we started dating when I was 24 and said, hey, I really want to go back to school and be a fashion designer. He'd been like, okay, let's do it. But when we met, I started going through this whole custody thing and all the abuse and all that stuff. And I know there's so many people that have experienced abuse, so much worse circumstances than myself. We weren't beat up or anything like that. I don't, but we were pushed around, spit on. I was, my son was pushed a couple times. I mean, it just things like that. It's just, it's, it's just an intimidation factor. It was just all about intimidation and trying to get the upper hand. And it was just very difficult those first five, six years after the divorce. And then trying to keep your head afloat financially, trying to get promoted at work during all of that time, pay for the mortgage myself. So I would say late 20s to like mid 30s was tough in a lot of different aspects. One of the life events that made that time period difficult for Amy is that she decided to go back to school, which is a good thing, but it also is one more thing that would be taking up her time and that she had to fit into her day. So she ultimately worked at The Limited for 16 years. And after some time in collections, she started running the dialer systems for the company. And this meant that she sat in a room with about 10 other people running computer systems all day. Amy says this is the most uncreative position she has ever held in her life. But one of the great benefits that The Limited offered to her at the time was that they would pay for their employees to go back to school if they were pursuing a degree that fell within the scope of the company's business. Amy had been told that she couldn't get promoted at the company, something that she really wanted at the time because she didn't have a college degree. So Amy went back to school. She studied multimedia technology with a minor in marketing, a major that was mainly focused on building websites. This wasn't exactly what Amy wanted to do, but it was a more creative field. And because of the incentives at the limited, including a decent amount of paid time off, she was thinking about getting that promotion. So she worked full time. She went to school full time, all while going through a custody battle with her first husband. And she graduated at the age of 33. This was the same year Amy also had her daughter. So she has two kids. Now, in the next couple of years after Amy's graduation from college, after giving birth to her daughter, Amy's creative side started to come out again. For her wedding to Justin, Amy DIY'd a lot of the decorations for it, and that is what led her to her first business idea, which was selling wedding decor through an Etsy store. She called that store a stylish design, and it's actually still around. In that store, she sold custom-made card boxes for the cards that guests bring to weddings and flower girl baskets and ring bearer pillows and other handmade items that people could use during their weddings. Amy quickly found success with this idea. I had a girlfriend of mine from high school and she was like, you should just open a store. And I was starting to feel like really frustrated in my position at work because again, uncreative. I sat in front of 20 computer screens in a locked room, kind of like an air traffic controller type room. And I just let a dialer computer system run. And then when it was done, I would do the reporting for it. So there was a lot of internet surfing, a lot of homework being done during that time when I was still in school, a lot of like, what do I want to do with my life kind of thing. So I started creating stuff for weddings on Etsy and the store took off. I mean, 
within about a year, we were selling six figures. So I eventually like started cutting my hours back at work. So I was like at 42, then at 32, then at 25. Well, then they started doing a little shift at work where you could take the afternoons off because, you know, collections, just a little history. No one's home in the afternoon. You either hit them in the morning, you hit them at night. So a lot of times we lowered our staffing between like one and five o'clock. So I would start taking what they call voluntary time off. So my paychecks were like 10 hours a week. 12 hours a week because I was taking the afternoons and leaving and going shopping. So I would go to Hobby Lobby, Joann's, Michael's and buy supplies and then go home and make everything. So I did that for about a year on my own. And my husband was not exactly happy in his job either. He was a quality control analyst for also a credit card company. So he was doing a lot of hiring and firing, traveling. He just, he just hated it. And He said, if you can pay for the bills for everything for three months, I'll quit my job and I'll help you because there's no marketing involved with Etsy. Everything's online. They bring the people to you. I mean, Etsy was huge 10 years ago. So it was just putting the stuff up there and people came. I mean, I used to get thousands of views a day on my stuff. So my husband quit his job two months in because we were paying for the bills and then some. We're all about experiences, not things. So we were not splurging. We just had money in our account, but I was working 65 hours a week. I mean, it was insane. So I had a four-year-old. I mean, she was going to the sitter. And then when she started school, I would go to bed at like two or three in the morning and then get back up at seven to get the kids off to school and get work. So we were running a six-figure plus business with no goals, no plan, no business plan. We were just like, hey, this is great. We have four or 500 open orders all the time. And then when my daughter started kindergarten, my son started college. And that was the year that Etsy went public, which means in a nutshell, everything that I used to hand make, China now is making and selling to the big box stores and selling on Etsy. So six months after Etsy went public, all my views were cut in half. We lost 40% of our income that following year, 40%. And then the following year after that was 20%. So in a two-year span, we lost 60% of our income. So at that point, you know, my husband and I are both doing this full-time. So I didn't do any of the shopping. My husband was responsible for like the logistics, the shipping, sourcing materials. We had, you know, I designed like, baskets and things like that, had a made in China and they were shipped over, all kinds of things. I remember going into the big box stores like a year and a half after that. Again, he did all the shopping for the supplies. And I walked into Hobby Lobby and I walked into Michael's and I started crying because I saw all of the burlap things that I made from hand, all the chalkboards that I bought with the slate and made the frame to go around it. Like all of that stuff was there and I could not compete with the pricing. It just made me so sad. With the loss of so much income, Amy and Justin knew that one of them would have to go back and get a job. So Justin said that he would do it. He went to work for the post office and he still works there as a carrier. Amy stuck with her business because she thought it would pick up again. To help it do that, she began researching new product concepts. She would search on Etsy for handmade items that still got a lot of views and then she would make those products herself. The first items she tried to make were holiday stockings, and they were a hit. She sold a ton of them, but perhaps just as importantly, this was also the product that brought Amy back to sewing. I was just searching on Etsy going, what's handmade that still gets a lot of views? 
and it was holiday stockings. I'm like, I can sew stockings. I used to sew in high school. I used to like to make clothes. I'll make holiday stockings. So that's where it all started. I started watching YouTube videos on how to do, you know, inside out and do zippers and buttons. I started taking classes at like the local little sewing shop here in Columbus, just to kind of hone in on how to do certain stitching and things like that. Got my old sewing machine from my sister that my mom bought us 20 years ago that she's never used. Got that all up to date, started making holiday stockings, and I sold a ton of them. So that got us out of the hole that holiday. I'm like, yes. Well, then January hit, and I was like, now what? Once the holiday season was over, Amy had to think of new product ideas. She was still selling her handmade car boxes for weddings, which she would customize for each order, but she wasn't selling anywhere near as many of them as she had before Etsy went public. At the time, Amy continued her research to find handmade items on Etsy that were still getting a lot of views, and she made several different products based on this research. She loves baking, so she made a line of aprons. Then she tried infinity scarves and then tea towels. So she was active. She was making things. She was putting herself out there. She was trying to see what would work, but none of the products really took off. So Amy started to take courses. She took a Facebook course, an Instagram course, a Pinterest course, a Savvy Business Owners course, and some of these courses were expensive, costing several hundred to several thousand dollars. She hired someone to build her a custom website too, which cost around $4,000. So she was trying really hard to get on the right path. But Amy now says that it was like she was trying to put a Band-Aid on a big cut that needed to be fixed instead of looking inside of herself to see what the problem was. It was a tough time, and Amy and her family had to make some adjustments financially to make everything work. We're living completely off my husband's income at this point, which is $40,000, which is not a lot to live off of when you've got a family, and plus my son's in college, and it's difficult. We went down to one car. We were one car family, which wasn't a big deal because my son had his own car in college, but when he started having his car at college, because we used his if we needed it. But then when he started to have his car at college, we were like really one car. But my husband works for our local post office. So it was a lot of us walking if we needed to go pick up our car, which is almost two miles away, riding the bike, he would have to ride his bike to work sometimes, just little sacrifices. My daughter had to be some we tried to plan stuff where, you know, it was his day off or if he wasn't working, but he was on call a lot too. That first year, a lot, a lot of long days for him. Amazon was big with the post office when he first started. So that was crazy, especially during the holidays. I'm trying to do stuff. He would have one day off between Thanksgiving and Christmas. It was just a lot to juggle that first two years. And then my breaking point came. (laughs) My husband's like, we just paid $4,000 for this website. Again, super supportive. He's always been that way. He's like, but when is this thing going to make some money? You know, I, I started this website and it's crickets. And I had no business plan for Etsy. I had no marketing plan for Etsy I, because I never had to do any type of marketing at Etsy because people came to the website and bought. So now I have my own website and I put it out there and I'm like, why isn't anyone coming to my website? <laughs> like I paid $4,000 for this and it looks all pretty. I had professional photography done. I paid hundreds and thousands of dollars for that. I'm like, what is going on? And it just went nowhere. I mean, nowhere. I had maybe $500 in sales the first year with my infinity scarves and my aprons and this and that. And then I went back to take one of these courses that I had never taken that I paid for. And the one thing they were like, you have to niche down to one thing. 
And I'm like, I am all over the place. I can't keep being driven by money, but money's also a weight on my shoulders. And I'm the one that's brought all this on my family. Now keep that in mind too, the psychological, (laughs) that I'm the one that's brought all this on my family because my husband's working extensively long hours and not getting paid for it. Yes, he wanted to quit his job before, but I'm the one that did this and we were doing really well. And then it was torn out from underneath us and we had nothing. So I had a lot of pressure on me, like, what am I going to do? I mean, I felt so bad and so guilty. And I still do feel that way a little bit because I'm still not making a profit really, but it's not all about the money. And I've always had this mindset in the past two years that it will work out. And my husband's still leery of it, but I think he now sees that I've got a plan. I've got things written down. I'm like, you know, these are the things that I want to do. And the steps actionable to get there have always been an issue for me because again, I am not analytical thinking. I am creative thinking. I've had people go, you just need to bring in a business partner, have them take that side of the business and you do the creative side. Well, that's great. But what do I pay them? I'd have to have someone come in that has no desire to make any money for another year or two. You know what I mean? When you own your own business, you're wearing 25, maybe more hats. And then you're a mom and you have that to deal with too. And you're a friend and you're a sister and you've got so many hats in your personal life and your business life. And when you work from home, they all collide together. So for me, it was a lot of pressure on me And again, no one was giving pressure except for myself because I felt like a failure. I am the one that's put us in this financial situation where my husband has to work all this. We have no insurance. We have one car. We can't go on vacations. We can't have experiences. We can't go and do things. I can't take my kid to the movies. I like to go to the gym as a stress reliever. I like had to take my daughter's birthday money. Yes, it was that bad. Hey, can I borrow $20 for my eight-year-old from your birthday stash so I can go to the gym and work out? I mean, yeah. And my girlfriends would go out to wine and I'm like, I like, you know, don't want to get a bottle like they do because I can't pay for it. And I don't want to charge it because we just don't do that. I, I don't charge. It's just a cycle of not letting people know what's really going on because no one wants to hear that. I don't want to be Debbie Downer. I guess it's kind of felt like I was. So I hit a lot from my friends and family. Amy, of course, eventually figured out her next step. At the time, she was in this Savvy Business Owners course that I mentioned earlier. And through her work with that group, she decided she had to really hone in on what she wanted her business to look like. And what she ultimately decided is that she wanted to take a fashion design course. So through that business owners group, Amy met a friend who did some research for her. That friend uncovered a course that Amy was interested in taking. It's called Factory 45, and it's an advanced sustainable fashion design course that teaches participants how to run a Kickstarter campaign and through that campaign launch their first line. The course sounded like a good fit for Amy, but there was a catch, as there sometimes is. It also costs $3,000. That was a lot of struggle to get into that because, mind you at the time, no money. So this was in June of 2017. And my husband's like, if you really think this is going to be it, and this is, I'm like, there's nothing else like this out there. I don't know how to contact factories. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. My husband's like, here's a chunk of money. I'm just going to put it out there. Here's $10,000. This is from you know our savings. Once it's gone, it's gone. So make it work. Whatever you need to do to get up to the point to where you launch your Kickstarter, once it's gone, it's gone. 
So Amy started the Factory 45 course in January 2018. And while she was in this course, she also watched a documentary called The True Cost, which made Amy realize what direction she wanted to go in with her fashion line. So The True Cost focuses on telling the story of our clothing, who makes our clothes and what impact the clothing industry has on the world. And in that documentary, within the first eight minutes or so of the film, which is available on Amazon Prime at the time of this recording, if you're interested in watching it, they cover the collapse of this building in the Rana Plaza district in Bangladesh in 2013. The eight-story building contained apartments, stores, a bank, and a clothing factory. And the factory workers had noticed cracks in the foundation of the building at one point, and they told the management about it, but they were still told to report in to work. And then one day in 2013, the building collapsed with the workers inside. More than 1,100 people died and many more were injured. And in the true cost, they show like a row of bodies wrapped in white sheets with identification cards with photos affixed to the fabric. And there's a scene of crowds of people at the crash site holding photos of their loved ones with just anguish all over their faces. And there's a shot of a young boy leaning against an adult holding a photo of an older boy that looks to be a preteen or a young teenager. And they don't know what happened to him. That scene really got me. And then there's a scene with an anchor saying that many American clothes are made in Bangladesh by workers who are paid $2 a day. A 2018 story in Racked, which draws on some reporting from the New York Times, mentions that Walmart, Zara, and Benetton specifically have produced clothing in the Rana Plaza district. The Children's Place, in particular, had produced 120,000 pounds of clothing at the time in a Rana Plaza factory, although it is worth noting that the Children's Place told the New York Times that the factory wasn't producing any clothing for them at the time of the building's collapse. So all of this, the story of how our clothing is made, the stories of the people who are making it and the terrible tragedy of this building collapse and the factory workers who lost their lives. Amy is thinking about all of this and she decides on a direction for her business. You know, this factory was, uh, there's so many times, there's no smoke detectors. The foundation was cracking. There were so many warning signs and these people did not have to die. And these are people that had nothing else. And they were leaving their families for months at a time, leaving their little children with people in their village so they could go and try and make some money and a living for themselves. Or they had children with them on the floor of this place working. I mean, it's just, I couldn't unsee it. I don't understand, and I'll never be able to stand because I'm not wired that way, but how you can look the other way when it's visibly right there in your face that these people are, I know it's a third world country. It's not in the United States, but this stuff happens in the United States too. And I'm not talking about like a collapse of a building. I'm just talking about how people treat each other. So at that point, I was like, I want to look at more sustainable, but I'm not a hundred percent into it. You know what I mean? I was just like, it, I saw it, but I couldn't unsee it. So I was like, let's just try, finish the course, started focusing on my designs. And it was a dress that I had bought from Old Navy, which started the entire thing, a maxi dress. And I remember being out that summer. This is the summer of 2018. And I remember being out and it was hot. Maxi dresses are long. And I remember being hot and going, this is a dress. Why am I hot? I wish I could just take this bottom layer off. And that started the modular maxi dress. 
And so I sketched it out. Again, I'm not a good drawer. Sketched out this maxi dress. And the more I sketched it, the more pieces it became. So I now have a modular maxi dress. That's one dress that turns into nine separates. So that's my baby. And that was like, that's how I'm going to be sustainable, being able to wear it more than once. Because sustainable means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. This was the beginning of Evolvery, Amy's fashion company. Like Amy said, the modular maxi dress is one dress that can become nine separate pieces. So you can wear it as the maxi dress, or you can unbutton the bottom portion and wear it as a knee length dress. You can unbutton the top portion and just wear the maxi skirt or a knee length skirt, or you can wear the top portion as a long top or a crop top. So one piece of clothing can be worn in all of these different ways. So Amy had a friend who is a designer in Ohio. Her name is Valerie Mayen. She was on season eight and all stars season five of Project Runway. And she owns Yellow Cake Shop, a contemporary clothing company in Cleveland. Amy remembers that Valerie told her she should use a New York based pattern maker that Valerie had worked with while she was on Project Runway to make the pattern for the modular maxi dress. Amy did get in touch with a pattern maker and it took about a year to make a pattern for the dress. This was all going on while Amy was still enrolled in the Factory 45 course learning how to launch her line on Kickstarter. And here's where money comes into play again. She had to pay to make a video for Kickstarter. She had to pay for all of the photography and she needed to make samples of each of her dresses. Now all of this is expensive. So when you make something, let's say it costs $40 to make something in production it costs five to six times that to have a sample made. So like my sample dresses were $120 to make each one. And I had $80 of materials in it. So I'm $200 into a dress just for the sample. And that's not even to make the pattern. Patterns are like 250 to 300 a piece. If you have any adjustments, it's by the hour to grade sizes, which means making a pattern for extra small, small, medium, large, however, whatever size range you do. It's usually in the United States about 250 per size to have it graded. So roughly one piece of clothing from idea concept to sample to final is three to $4,000. Just one thing. Despite the cost, of course, Amy still had samples made of the modular maxi dress in several patterns and solids, as well as samples of a petal sleeve top and a versatile vest that would be part of her first fashion line. So with these three clothing items, the modular maxi dress, the petal sleeve top, and the versatile vest, Amy launched her Kickstarter campaign in April 2019. The idea of the line is that customers could buy these three pieces of clothing and make 35 outfits with them. So together, they're kind of like a mini capsule wardrobe. So because this was a Kickstarter campaign, Amy had tiered prices. And for the early adopter tier, the least expensive tier, her prices were as follows. $49 for the pedal sleeve top, $59 for the versatile vest, and $230 for the modular maxi dress. And then there were packages that combined two or three pieces of clothing for different prices. Amy's goal was to raise 20000 And if she brought in less than that amount, which it's like this for any Kickstarter campaign, then she didn't get any of the money. So as of May 24th, 2019, when the campaign ended, Amy had raised $2,745. Remember, her goal was $20,000, and that was through 25 backers. Since then, Amy has referred to this launch when she's talking about it on Instagram as my failed Kickstarter campaign. But she didn't let the results of this Kickstarter campaign stop her from moving forward with her fashion line. You have got to have a solid, solid following of thousands of people and backers before you can launch anything, not just fashion. 
anything. And I gave myself a year to build up my subscriber list, to build up my marketing, to build up my Instagram, my Facebook, all of that stuff. And when it came down to it, I had 20000 for my Kickstarter and I raised over 2000 and that's it. So I had people the first week and it was mainly friends and fam- not even family really. I don't think any of my family supported me, like even donated a dime. I had some friends. A lot of it was people I didn't know that I had met at local markets and a few through Instagram and Facebook, but a little over $2,000 and that's all I raised. As soon as I wasn't meeting my quota, I had a manufacturer that I loved in Texas. They work with small businesses. As soon as they found out my Kickstarter was failing and wasn't going to be fulfilled, they dropped me. So this was just this past June. So that failed. So then I had all of, you know, $10,000 socked into this entire thing. And I was like, what do I do now? I have no idea what I'm going to do with this. I have all these samples. What do I do with all of this stuff? I have amazing photography, amazing video all these people, my model I love. I'm like, what do, what do I do with all of this? And my, and my husband's like, I don't know, but we need to do something. So I started talking to my startup fashion group and, and I interviewed prior to choosing the one that I worked with in Texas. I, they had all of my fabric, all of my patterns, everything, and without notice, shipped it all back to me. Sorry, we can no longer work with you. And I'm like, okay, what do I do with all of this now? So I, I had interviewed a ton before and then a ton of manufacturers after, because I was like adamant, I have to produce in the United States. I have to produce in the United States because I had manufactured, remember, in China before when I had my wedding business. So it was a big language barrier. I didn't want to do that. I really wanted to produce in the United States, but I kept coming up with time after time, all they cared about was money. And that's what the Texas one came back as. And I'm glad I found it out now, but where they make all their money is on the front end. They don't make it in production. They make it off of you of charging you a ridiculous amount for making patterns, a ridiculous amount for grading your patterns. And that's how they make their money. And I was like, I can't be paying $80 worth of materials alone in, a, in the modular maxi dress. We're not wealthy people, remember. We live off $40,000 we have for several years. I can't marketing wise relate to people that can afford a $400 dress. So to me, it was very scary at that time. I did a lot of soul searching and I was like, I've put so much into this. I can't quit. I just have to find another way to do it. And I remembered something that my friend Mary from my savvy business women's group said, she goes, you just have to make a little tweak. And sometimes when you make that little tweak, it can make a 180 in your business and really change. So Amy went back to her startup business group and she made a big change in her thinking. She decided that she would be okay with producing her clothing outside of the United States, but she wanted the company that she worked with to be ethical and sustainable because that was still really important to her. A friend encouraged her to find another group on Facebook, a sustainability group, and through that group, Amy found a new partner, a company called Telestory in the Philippines run by a woman named Hannah Thiessen, who is from the United States. Tell a story startup as well. They started with one sewer and now they're up to, they just added a fourth one. They did a Kickstarter. It failed as well. (laughs) So we're kind of like parallel. And I reached out to her and she immediately responded back and she's from Minnesota. And I said, oh my God, this was meant to be. 
another Midwesterner. She's always been in the social, like a social work kind of atmosphere in Minnesota. She worked with drug trafficking, with women and things like that. So she kind of went through the same experience, went over for a a retreat thing in the Philippines and just what she saw couldn't unsee. A lot of our business model overlapped and were very similar. Not to say we have not had growing pains with them because we have and they with us, but we've been working with them. I know people are like, oh, your prices are going to be a lot less now because you're doing production overseas. No, (laughs) the production cost is the same that it is here in the United States. The big difference is when I'm paying them to make 30 pieces, it would be 300 to 500 pieces here in the United States for that pricing. And being a small startup fashion company like myself, A, I don't have storage for that. B, I don't have the capital for it. My Kickstarter did not get fully funded. Therefore, no one got charged anything and I didn't get a dime from it. In order for me to buy three, 500 of each and then being able to forecast sizing when I haven't had sales, I just couldn't do it. And every single manufacturer in the United States that I talked to, even ones that are smaller and do smaller quantities, most of them wanted 150, 150 just to make the dress. That doesn't include materials. I mean, and then by the time you mark it up and things like that, I'm talking $800 to $1,000 for a dress. And I'm like, no, that's insane. So I got really frustrated by it. So working with Telestory and knowing that they're making more than a living wage, making these products too, makes me feel good. And I'm hoping makes my customers feel good too, knowing that they're not contributing to you know hurting someone because there is a person behind every single thing that's made, not just fashion. And I think we just got so accustomed, I mean, myself included, just accustomed to like just going through and having everything quick, quick, fast, fast, and not really stopping and thinking about the human factor that's behind all of this. The environmental factor, I think, is becoming more and more predominant in the news and and education and things. People are more aware of that. But the sustainable side, the human factor side, there's such a big difference between the two. and, And the education on that, I think, has a long way to go. And I think a lot of people care about being more conscious about what they buy, but they're not sure how to do it and getting in the mindset or where to go, where to look, that it's okay to thrift, that it's okay to not change your entire wardrobe in just one day. It's okay to still wear those pieces that maybe possibly more than likely weren't made well or weren't made under good circumstances by people or, you know, those kind of things. So I want people to know that, that it's okay to still keep those pieces But as you're buying new things, be conscious about it. Know what you're buying. Ask where it's being made, how it's being made. And if someone's hiding how it's being made, they're hiding something else, usually something a lot larger. There's a lot of greenwashing going on right now too. And there's 20 steps to making a garment, but only one part of it is sustainable, ethical, and then they call it that, and it's really not. So you really have to look into it. And big companies have lost the chain from start to finish because the people aren't looking. And when they are looking, they have other people in charge of it. And if you watch True Cost, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But when you get with small businesses, you know where it's coming from. You know the workers, you can see what's going on. So just trying to get people more in that mindset and showing them, these are the names of the women that made my pieces. 
Telestory's program model is centered around making ethical fashion. The company employs four women in the Philippines as of the time I'm recording this and pays them a living wage and they outline on their website what that means. They also work with Amy to find dead stock fabric. This is fabric that would normally end up in the landfill and they use that to make Amy's clothes. So this is another way that Amy's line is sustainable. And from there, Amy developed her current line, which is called Evolvery Essentials. The Essentials line was built on this idea that if people begin to make small changes in what they are buying, they can make a big difference in the environment. So I looked up some statistics about this, and I found an October 2019 story in Business Insider that said that fashion production makes up 10% of the world's emissions, and 85% of clothing ends up in landfills every year. And then this sentence I took directly from the article, the equivalent of one garbage truck full of clothes is burned or dumped in a landfill every second. So Amy started the Evolvery Essentials line to give people a place to start to make changes in their wardrobe by purchasing high quality clothing that will last, by purchasing clothing that is made from dead stock fabric, so it's addressing the problem of too many clothes in landfills, and by purchasing clothing that can be worn multiple ways. So hopefully it reduces the total number of clothing items that you need in your closet. Through Evolvery Essentials, she has offered the pedal sleeve top and the versatile vest from her Kickstarter campaign, as well as the short sleeve and long sleeve t-shirts I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, and short sleeve and long sleeve swing dresses. These are all basic items that look great on many body types and that should have a place in any woman's wardrobe, Amy says. There have been some growing pains with this line, you know, some challenges with the dead stock fabric, difficulties in deciding how to sell clothing because she's working with dead stock fabric. Amy is uncertain sometimes how much fabric she will have, but Amy is still excited about the direction that she is going in. But I wanted to start out with basics that people would feel comfortable with shopping better for. So you need a new t-shirt. That's an essential piece I feel that everyone should have in their closet. Pretty much everyone does have a basic t-shirt in their closet, a basic long sleeve shirt in their closet for layering, a swing dress because it's so amazing on all body types. I get people at markets and they ask me, does it cling in the center? Girl, that's what Spanx are for. (laughs) I wear Spanx. But no, it's very flowy, the, the fabric that we use, but it can be layered worn multiple ways. I'm very big on versatility, hence the modular maxi dress. I want you to be able to wear it more than one way. If you're going to wear something and you're going to spend the money on it, you work hard for your money. You should be able to look good in it, feel good in it, feel good about it, how it was made. And you should be able to wear it more ways than one. You should be able to wear it 10 different ways. So we started out with those basic pieces. The pedal sleeve top was from my Kickstarter. That's a nod back to vintage fashion, the sleeve on that. And kind of my heritage, like my great aunt and my grandma who used to sew, because I really love old vintage clothing. So that was kind of a nod to that drop waist. So it fits a lot of different body types. I don't want to be confined to just one type of body type. And we are going to be 100% sustainable using dead stock fabric. Dead stock fabric isn't necessarily sustainable as far as it's organic, but it's sustainable in the fact that it is throwaway. So there's warehouses upon warehouses over in the Philippines that are filled with these things. And they're incredibly hard to find over here in the United States. The cost is less for the fabric. You buy it by the pound. But some of it, I'm very big on patterns and mixing patterns and very colorful and things like that. 
sometimes I can only get 10 yards of something. So that's why I try to let people know that if they want something, they need to get it now. Because if you lose out on it and you really wanted that pattern, I'm probably not going to be able to find it again. It's like a needle in a haystack. So Hannah, who's the owner of Telestory, it's about a three hour round trip for her to fabric shop for us. So we do a lot of it virtually through Facebook Messenger and they're 12 hours difference. (laughs) So a lot of it, when we did fabric shop in the summer for everything that we've made so far, it was usually one or 2 a.m. my time and then one or two in the afternoon their time. We're working through kinks, I guess I should say, um, with Deadstock Fabric. It's new to both of us using it. We tried pre-sale when we first started, and we ended up running out of a certain color of knit. So we would go back, and it wouldn't be exactly the same knit, but it would be similar. Then we got into fit issues when we did that because the samples are made out of one type of fabric. So it's been a whole learning process for both Telestory and myself, learning to, okay, this one's got a lot more give in it or a lot more, you know, some of the knits can be, you know, the weights are different. There's more stretch to it. I got a whole flock of black knit dresses that were two sizes too big when you put them on. I mean, they're ginormous because they've got so much stretch to them. So I have those and they're kind of like, I'm stuck with them now. So I have myself made adjustments to them so that I've already paid for them, but then I have to go back and re-sew them and surge them and finish them off and do all that to try and keep them and be able to sell them. So it's been a learning process. We're really looking forward to finalizing the maxi, getting it trademarked because there's nothing else like it on the market. We're still not making a profit yet, but it's exciting what 2020 has to bring. So through the years that Amy has been working for herself, through her wedding decor business, through the time she has been trying to build up a Valvary, and all the financial challenges that have come with that, and even just regular challenges that come with being a business owner, she has thought about picking up a job with a reliable income. I would guess that most people who work for themselves have entertained this thought sometimes. I know I have. But you know there were reasons why she didn't end up doing this. A practical reason was that for a long time she didn't have a car, so that limited her employment options. But also, uh, more of a personal reason is that she didn't want to lose a Valvary. She had spent a long time trying to build this fashion business, and she put effort and time and heart into it, and she wanted to see it through. I tried to find something that I could do working from home, even being like a secret shopper. But again, you need a vehicle to go and do that kind of stuff. So I did look into it extensively for about six months while I was still doing my stuff, trying to work on Evolvery and getting that going, but nothing ever worked out. And we just cut back on everything that we could possibly cut back on. Were we able to go on trips or do things like that? No, you know, we had to cut back on pretty much everything. But I felt like if I did go back to work outside of doing Evolvery, that I would never come back to Evolvery. And that's what I was afraid of. So that's what kept me motivated to like really push and find a way to make this work because this was my, I don't want to say last ditch effort, but I feel like the whole Kickstarter, I thought that was the end of everything. If that didn't work, my husband and I had talked about it. Like, we're going to do this. We're putting 10,000 into it. And if that doesn't work, we got to find something else to do. So once that was done, my husband really saw how much work that I really put into this for this last year and a half especially the last year leading up to Kickstarter. And he was like, you can't just let it go. That's a part of you. The modular maxi dress, that's your art. That's your art extension. That's you. I mean, you're in that. And he was like, it's such a innovative thing. 
I just want you to find another avenue to do it. And if you need to get a part-time job and you feel like you need to do that. But then I also, again, I schedule markets almost a year ahead of time. So that's where I make a majority of my money is the last quarter of every year. I usually do 15 to 20,000 the last quarter of every year at markets, but I don't make 15 to 20 because there's also materials and my time involved in all of that. So it's about half. $10,000 isn't a lot, but it, it helps. So I knew I always had that coming up every quarter. So trying to stay on the path, I know we have a good following for the Evolvery Essentials right now, but we're still in a core like 30 or 40 people that buy from us. And I need to get beyond that. Amy has a lot of ideas about how to do that. And at one point she was at a gathering with Jenny Britton from Jenny's Ice Cream, which is based in Columbus. So it's a company that's local to Amy. And Amy asked Jenny Britton how to sell a higher end product when people can pay much less for that product elsewhere. That's what Amy is doing with her clothes. One of her t-shirts is $44 full price the last time I checked. And you can get a t-shirt from a big chain for probably less than $10. Jenny Britton is kind of dealing with the same thing in the ice cream world. A pint of her ice cream is $12, whereas a pint of ice cream in the grocery store might cost, I don't know, three, four or $5. So Amy wanted to know how Jenny marketed her higher end product. She's like, you need to get out in your community. And I was always like, no, I need to get out into the United States. And she's like, no, you need to get in your community. Do whatever you can to get involved in your community. And I knew that. But when someone like that told me, like to my face, I was like, you're right. So my focus has really been on starting pop-ups at local health and wellness places. People that are my people, the people that get the whole sustainability and people that want to learn more about it and want to learn about the ethical, what's good for you, what's good for the environment, things like that. You know, it's hard to talk to people that aren't open or willing to it. So if you go to places that those people are, it's a heck of a lot easier because they're already there. I meet a lot of people at markets. I have a good database of uh, customers that are teachers and they love the comfortability factor and versatility of the Evolver Essentials. So we're going to be doing like home pop-up shops starting in 2020 where I go to a teacher's home, they invite their teacher friends and we just mix and match pieces, do those kind of things. And my big goal for 2020, I want to open a store. So I want to open a brick and mortar. So that is my goal. I got to have capital for that. So I don't really know how that's going to work out yet. <laughs> But yeah, I really want to open a store. There's nothing, there's, you know, curated thrift stores and things like that here in Columbus, but there's really no store in my area that you can go into and know that every single piece that you're buying is either sustainable, ethical, or like Evolvery is both. And I find my shopping habits are, I still am old school and I want to try things on. And when I have people that come to markets and feel my clothing and see it, and they're like, this is so incredibly soft. I can't believe the knit. It's not just cheap knit, like will fall apart after 10 washings. It's like really nice knit. So that's the goal for 2020 is, is a store, a brick and mortar store. So just to get the product in more people's hands, but really just solving the problem that they might not even realize that they have yet, but that once they're educated on it, they'll realize, wow, I'm paying $10 for something. I know how much fabric costs and I know how much people get paid for making things. I have friends that go, I can't stand you. I'm like, why? And they're like, because you told me that. And now when I go shopping, I look at something and I'm like, Ugh, it's $10. Someone made that for like 50 cents. And I'm like, I'm sorry. And they're like, I wish you would have told me that. So it goes back to the, you know, once you see it, once you know it, you can't turn away. <laughs> 
obviously the other aspect to owning your own business is I do want to support my family. I mean, I do want to be able to, you know, be able to pay for things because the world revolves around money. I do want to be able to pay for experiences for us to do things together. Not material things really, but again, I, I want to contribute to my family and our welfare and all of that. So that of course, I do want to make money, but I also want people to care more. I just care more about other people. I, I want a lot of things, but caring is really the backbone for everything that I do now. It's just care. I just care about other people. And I just feel like the world is so much better when people care about things. So there are a lot of things in the works for Amy this year. Her big goal, as she mentioned, is to open a brick and mortar store. As far as her production partners, Amy will continue to work with Telestory in the future, but she has also found two other production partners, one based in Cambodia and one in Dubai. And these new partners will work on the modular maxi dress, which Amy plans to release in April of this year, 2020. She's also going to be releasing different types of clothing. She mentioned jumpsuits, rompers, and shorts on her Instagram. So there's a lot of things to keep an eye on with Evolvery. You can find her on Instagram. I'll link that in the show notes. And of course, like every time I do an episode, I just wanted to thank Amy Homan for taking the time to talk with me. She actually talked with me for two hours and she gave me a lot of information. She was so open about sharing her story and I'm really so appreciative of that. Just a quick review about what is sticking with me from this episode. Something I have not been able to stop thinking about really since I interviewed Amy is this advice she got from her friend about just making a little tweak in your business in order to make a change. That's all I'm going to say, because I think if your business is in a place where that kind of advice will help, you'll know it as soon as you hear it. And the other thing that is really sticking with me in this episode is the power of community or making connections in business, you know, of really joining uh, the Facebook groups that are available, of making connections on Instagram, of taking courses and getting to know the other people who are in those courses. I mean, this was such a big part of Amy's story. She had the friend that she met in the course she was taking who told her about the Factory 45 fashion course. And she had the friend in a group that she was a part of who told her about the pattern maker in New York who helped her make her first dress, the modular maxi dress. She got that great advice from somebody in the group about just making a little tweak to her business in order to sort of put it on the right path. And that's when she decided to think about producing her clothing line outside of the United States. So I would say that just community was such a big, big, big part of Amy building her fashion line. And it's something to think about. It's something I'm thinking about as a freelance writer who has my own business. I would say that I have not been the best at building community. And now I'm wondering if I should start trying to make some connections. So thank you so much for tuning in today. I am so grateful for everybody who listens. I say that every week. Until next time, take care. Thank you so much for taking the time today to listen to We Built This Life. If you enjoyed the show, I would be so grateful if you went to iTunes to leave a review. That really helps other people find the show and in turn helps the show grow. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook, but mainly Instagram, under We Built This Life. I'm pretty active over there. If you have a story that you want to share, I'd love to hear it. Please DM me on Instagram or you can email WeBuiltThisLifePodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening today and I'll see you soon.